I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech Show, a podcast where we talk about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. Behavioral science and artificial intelligence can enable recruiters and candidates to find a job that matches their skills and potential. Frida Pauli, CEO and founder of Pymetrics, explained how behavioral science can be used to get insights from a candidate that we would not get from looking at a resume. We talked about how games based on neuroscience can help candidates find a job. Frida also explained ways in which a recruiting platform can function like a recommendation engine. Before we begin with the interview, I want to thank MongoDB for being a sponsor of the show. MongoDB is one of the most popular databases used across many modern applications. This May, they're hosting an event in New York City called MongoDB World. This is a three-day educational conference from May 4th to May 6th. With over 100 sessions, tutorials, and workshops, you can grow your technical skills in MongoDB. In particular, day three at MongoDB World features Builders Fest, a full day of hands-on build sessions, coding challenges, and maker workshops. You can join a MongoDB developer workshop to level up your MongoDB skills and build something. You can also test your skills across competitions such as Code Golf and Capture the Flag. At the maker workshops, you can also learn new skills and If you're interested in gaming, you can compete at some gaming tournaments that'll be available on day three at MongoDB World. Check out the conference on May 4th and 6th in New York City. They're also giving out a 40% discount to listeners of the show if you use promo code WITSHOW. That's W-I-T-S-H-O-W. To get a ticket, go to mongodb.com world and use promo code WITSHOW to get 40% of the ticket. Thank you. Frida Pauli, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. You have a background in cognitive science, You went to grad school and you're working related to this. Can you explain in general at a high level what cognitive science is about? Yeah, sure. So cognitive science is a new discipline that helps think about the brain, people and the brain in a different, it's a different scientific discipline than say psychology or other forms of study of human behavior. It's generally related to non-invasive approaches to looking at brain behavior relationships, meaning when I was a cognitive neuroscientist at Harvard and MIT, I would study humans using MRI scanners. However, it's not entirely limited to that. And so it's really just a new way of evaluating and thinking about human beings. And within this field, you're also looking at behavioral science. Can you explain what this consists of? Sure. Behavioral science, I think, is just a broader grouping. Cognitive neuroscience fits into that. Behavioral science is potentially somewhat broader. I think behavioral science tries to understand humans by looking at behavioral patterns. And so cognitive neuroscience would fall into that broader rubric. What's an example of a behavioral pattern? A behavioral pattern would be... so. I guess the way to think about this is, you know, a psychological study would generally be done by 
asking people to answer questions about themselves, right? And so that's a great way to think about people. However, there are certain limitations to that form of study because, I mean, one of the primary limitations is that people are not, are unfortunately um, well known to have self-report biases, meaning I might not know myself as well as I think I do. I might have certain tendencies to answer questions in ways that are not misleading, but just sort of, you know, somewhat biased. If you study people's behavior, so the way that they respond to their environment, that can often give you a more objective viewpoint on that person. And an example of that would be, for example, if you were going to study memory, you could have them memorize a string of numbers and then repeat it back. That would be a form of behavioral science because you are looking at their behavior rather than asking them questions. And you mentioned something very interesting where you're saying people can have self-report biases. They don't necessarily know certain things about themselves or other people notice some traits about them. Can you give an example where somebody might not give an accurate self-report? Yeah. So there's a very well-known type of self-report bias. It's called social desirability. So what that means is that people have a tendency to respond in ways that are what are called socially desirable. So for example, I'll give you a silly example, but if you have a question that says, you know, your coworker just said something that you don't agree with, right? And then you have like four possible responses that you might agree with, right? So one could be, I don't say anything. The next one could be, I politely respond that I don't agree. And I don't know, there's another one. And then the fourth one is I get up and I shout at my coworker and I run out of the room. Now, maybe even if you were the kind of person that would get up, shout at your coworker and, you know, run out of the room, social desirability bias would lead someone not to respond in that way because that's not a socially desirable behavior to scream at someone and leave the room. Does that make sense? So a bias that essentially means that people are answering in ways that may not be entirely truthful because they know it's not a socially acceptable way of behaving, even if they might actually behave in that way. And we're talking about all this because it relates to your most recent work, which is in the area of human resources and recruiting. You're the CEO and co-founder of Pymetrics, which is taking some concepts from behavioral science and applying those in the process of recruiting candidates. Before we get into this, I want to talk about some of the common traditional ways for recruiting candidates at a company. If you can explain some of those, that would be great. Yeah. And again, my background is not in HR. That's It's a new field for me, relatively new. So, But some of the common ways of recruiting candidates would be Obviously, so one of the main ones that I think we're trying to improve upon is what's called the resume drop. So, you know, people would go to a company's website and they would click on an application and they would submit their resume. And that's a almost ubiquitous form of, you know, HR practice. I don't know a single company, including Pymetrics, that doesn't use that. However, there have been many, many studies showing how the ways in which we evaluate that resume and the data that's on that resume to begin with, both of those lead to biased decision making, in particular racial and socioeconomic biases. So people that are you know, underrepresented minorities and people from non-privileged backgrounds tend to be at a strong disadvantage when people are submitting a resume. And then that resume is being reviewed either by our human or by some other form of technology. Now, obviously, there are many other practices in you know HR, none of which we actually 
seek to change. It's really that initial filtering of candidates to, you know, because people get hundreds of thousands, possibly even millions of people applying to their company, and they can only interview a certain number. And so it's trying to improve upon the selection of people to pass on to an interview phase, both in terms of that process being predictive of future success because resume review by humans and by machines has not really been shown to be predictive of success. However, it has been shown to have these fairly you know, significant biases, particularly around racial minorities and socioeconomic advantage. And so we're trying to both remove the bias and also make it more predictive. So that's the place where we help humans make better decisions. What is some of the information that is in a resume that can lead to this bias? Is it I'm just trying to think. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not sure if you've heard of the term proxy variable, but essentially, let's say there was a great study done by Vivian Meng in 2017 that essentially showed that two identical resumes, one submitted by a woman, one submitted by a man in computer science, basically had what are called proxy variables. So I'll give you two perfect examples. Identical resume, except that the woman played softball and the man played baseball. So that's a proxy variable because most men play baseball, many women play softball, for example. Another proxy variable would be colleges that you go to. So a woman could go to Barnard, which is an all-women's college, or Wellesley, which is an all-women's college, whereas a man would never go to that. And these are just two simple examples of where gender can get encoded in proxy variables. But you could imagine that also being true for race, for socioeconomic status. There are certain types of activities that somebody from a you know, bottom quintile or, you know, bottom two quintiles, the socioeconomic distribution would never play, such as, you know, skiing, for example, which is a very expensive sport. So there are many proxy variables on a resume, and that is part of why biases get encoded, not only in the decisions that are made using resumes, but actually in the data itself, which is what's so problematic. And that's why our system doesn't actually use resume data, because again, <laughs> there's been very little, if no peer-reviewed evidence showing that resumes predict success in a job. And yet there's a tremendous amount of data showing that they have that resume data is quite biased. If you're not using resume data, what data can you use? Yeah, sure. So that's where the behavioral science piece comes in. So my background, I spent 10 years at Harvard and MIT as a cognitive neuroscientist, as we have already mentioned. And, you know, the field of cognitive neuroscience or behavioral science has developed a whole series of essentially computer activities that can help us look at behavioral patterns that then you can match onto different cognitive, social, and emotional factors. So I just mentioned one that would look at memory, which is, you know, memorizing a string of numbers and then repeating it back. That's a fairly standard cognitive test. There are other tests that would look at, you know, your risk profile, for example, different types of reward that you would be sensitive to. There are other tests that would look at how altruistic versus self-interested you are. These are all assessments essentially that have been created by the behavioral science community to evaluate people looking at their behavior. And primarily they are used in research. They were developed for research purposes. And what we did is essentially say, oh, these are really interesting ways that you can look at human beings. They have some advantages over self-report questionnaires. Why don't we use them to measure people and then use the data that we get to evaluate what job or jobs they might be more versus less well-suited for? And how do people take this activities? Can you describe a little bit the system? Yeah. Basically, you would just, as part of the application process, be asked to go through a 20 to 25 minute series of activities that you would do on the computer. And again, just to be clear, we are what's called a strength 
based system. What that means is that all of the things we measure, all of them are adaptive. It's just a question of matching you to the right context. So if you take altruism, for example, you know, there are certain professions where being altruistic is very adaptive and there are other professions where being self-interested is more adaptive. So just depending on which way you, you know, you lean, there's no right or wrong answer. It's not like altruistic people are just always better. It's really about fitting you to the places where you're more likely to be successful. Now, if you're in a profession where most people are self-interested and you're altruistic, it doesn't mean you're going to fail miserably or you're never going to be successful. It just means that it's going to potentially be somewhat harder for you to, you know, sort of go against your natural tendencies that might be not as well suited for that particular occupation. So it's really trying to help you find your best fit as well as, you know, optimize the job search process. When taking this test, does it matter the environment where you're taking them or your current state at that moment? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's sort of like any other important thing you would do in life. Like you wouldn't, you know, go to a job interview if you had not slept the night before or really stressed out or if you just broken up with someone. I mean, you know, you want to kind of be your best self, um, your optimal self. And that's true for many important things that we do in life, not just this particular series of tasks that we're talking about right now. And you mentioned these things tend to be adaptive. Does this mean... People can take the test later on again. Does it work the same way as interviews where you go to an interview and then you might be too nervous or you didn't do as well? Like we're talking about, you know, your current state. Does it translate similarly here where you could just take again? Yeah, similarly. So you once you start an activity, you can obviously stop it and then restart it. However, that having been said, so I think what I would say is that really being your natural self is the best way to approach the hiring process in general, including this piece of it, because you will definitely be matched to multiple roles. And it's really a question of trying to get a sense of who you who you are more than trying to pass a test, which is unfortunately a lot of the way in which, you know, we've been conditioned to think that a job interview or something is like something you have to sort of I don't want to say fake, but essentially you have to like pretend to be this person. There's just so much stuff out there telling you how to make your resume the best it possibly can be and how to ace the interview. And, and our theory or approach is really, hey, if you are your real true self, that's when you're going to be most likely to find your optimal career fit, right? And that there are enough jobs to go around for everyone. It's really just about matching you to the right profession. Um, and so... Yes, you can retake it, and you know, but the whole process is designed to make you feel um, less nervous because there's no way you can you can't fail this test um, in the sense that there is no right or wrong answer. We try to inform people of that as much as possible. So you will always have matches. It's not a question of like there's a right and wrong way to behave, and if you don't behave in the right way, then you know, then you're gonna in quotes fail. That's not how a strength-based system works, which is what we are. One thing that I found interesting when I was reading about biometrics and your work in this space is the idea of approaching job searching and recruiting candidates analogous to recommendation engines that we use on a regular basis, for example, like Netflix. Can you explain that relation? Yeah. So again, what biometrics is, so first of all, you know, we work with human recruiters to help them make decisions. It's not that we're removing them from the process. We're 
work. It's an and process, right? Just like when you go into Netflix, it's not like you're just going to blindly watch the first thing they recommend. You're going to use that recommendation to then make a decision. And so that's one way to think about the way Pymetrics is like Netflix. The second way is there's there are several ways. So that would be one way. The second way is that it's a probabilistic estimate, right? So if I go onto Netflix and I see a movie that's an 80% fit, I'm more likely to like that movie than something that's a 20% fit. But that doesn't mean that every 20% fit movie I'm going to dislike. It just means I'm considerably less likely to like that movie. But maybe there are some that I really like. And then the third piece that I would say is very similar is that we're, we're like Netflix, not Rotten Tomatoes. So Rotten Tomatoes really does provide a score where, you know, a 99% movie is like a good movie and a 12% movie is a bad movie, right? That's a lot of the way that traditional hiring processes are built, which is that there's a good way to be and there's a bad way to be. That's not the way we are. And again, I don't know if you ever had this experience of having a movie that's recommended to you by Netflix that's like an 89% fit, and then you go look at its Rotten Tomato score, and it's like a 12% fit. And you're like, oh, well, I guess I don't match the typical movie recommendation with this particular movie, but I still really like this movie. And that's because Netflix is personalized to you. It says, hey, you know, these are the types of attributes you like, you tend to like in a movie. Let's expand all the possible options of movies that have those attributes and really present you with a broad and wide slate of things that you might like, as opposed to Rotten Tomatoes, which is much more constrictive and much more relying on sort of this idea that there are, in quotes, good movies and bad movies. And so those are the three ways that I would say we're more like a recommendation engine system like Netflix than we are a test. And what are some examples of data that can be used for this recruiting recommendation engine? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, the one that I just gave you previously, I think is a good one where your level of, you know, altruism versus self-interest can be very helpful in understanding what types of careers you're best suited for. There is no right or wrong approach to whether you are altruistic or self-interested, even though I think society might make you think that people that are altruistic are, you know, somehow better, but that's not true because there are professions where being self-interested is actually preferred. And so that's just a very simple example where knowing which end of the spectrum you fall on, you know, can be helpful. And then there are other professions where it doesn't matter whether you're self-interested or altruistic, either one could be good. So it's really just trying to take all of the different things that we measure and giving a holistic picture of someone as to kind of where they're, they are better versus less well-suited. Another important component in this system is that we look at unbiased talent signals. Right. Can you give a couple of other examples of? Yeah, absolutely. So that's sort of going back to the resume point that I was making earlier. So unfortunately, the resume, even if you took away name, so you didn't know if somebody was a man or a woman, there are many proxy variables, like the ones I just mentioned, like the school you go to or the activities you participate in, that will basically be able to sh tell someone even without a name, whether someone's a man or a woman. Our data isn't like that. We've actually selected variables that we know at the population level with respect to gender are not biased. So knowing how someone scores on all these different things, it's not possible to know whether they're a man or a woman. There are no proxy variables within the data. And so that's really important because if you... so. A system only works, there are two components to a system. One is the data and one is the, the machine learning algorithms. And if your data is biased, it's going to be very hard to be predictive and unbiased in your recommendations. Um, you're starting out at a huge disadvantage. And so that's one of the key important pieces of the data that we put into the system to begin with is that we've already pre-tested it for bias and, and shown that it's, it's largely unbiased. I want to switch gear now and talk about your time at academia like you mentioned earlier, you were there at MIT and Harvard for 10 years, plus 
you know, the time to do your PhD and your studies. What were some of the reasons why you decided to leave academia? So, yeah, I mean, it's funny. I left academia, but we still do a tremendous amount of research and, and publications. So I think all we did is take, I wanted to do something more applied. There's kind of a big push in academia, I mean, to publish and write research papers. And, and that's great because you're building upon a body of knowledge, but there are no incentives really, or very few incentives in academia to actually have applied uses of your research. And that's fine. But at the end of the day, I wanted to actually see an impact from the research that we were doing because, you know, the federal government spends billions of dollars on primary research. And I think it's important to then translate that primary research into tools that can help you know, the taxpayers who funded it. And so for me, it was just about having more impact. And the way that I came to be in the HR field was a somewhat serendipitous. So I left academia, I went to business school thinking, okay, I'm going to look for a way that the research we've been developing could be helpful in the world. And I saw recruiting for two years, because that's what MBA students do. And I was really struck by the fact that it appeared very lacking in scientific background and also um, quite biased. And that was the idea for Pemetrix because I thought to myself, okay, well, we can understand more fundamental things about people than what's on their resume, which is an important piece, right? The data piece. And then we can use machine learning tools to basically help us match people to the right occupations. And so that was the second piece. And that was really how I ended up building the platform. It was after having decided to leave academia because I wanted to have more impact and then realizing this was a place where we could have a lot of impact. And I think the other thing to think about is that the way Pemetrix works, because we are a recommendation system, we're also recommending roles for candidates. So typically when you go through a recruiting process, um, the process is generally thought to help the company, but not so much the job seeker. We've tried to turn that on its head. We obviously still want to help the companies, but we also want to help the job seeker. And the way that we do that is that if you go through an application process that uses Pymetrics, you can then take your data after you're done with that application process for a company, go directly to Pymetrics and see where else you might be suited. That's a very different approach to job application than any other system that I know of, whereby you can actually see like, hey, okay, I know I applied here, but where else could I be a good fit? And then it actually matched to other roles that you could be a good fit for. And that was a, directly a result of seeing my classmates at Harvard go through the extremely repetitive process of submitting a resume and then getting rejected, submitting a resume and getting rejected. And I thought to myself, why can't we just have one process where they only have to do this once? And then instead of just, you know, this one to many application process, we can just point them in the, to the places where they're well suited rather than having them go through the same process over and over again and continually getting rejected until they find their right role. So I think that the fact that we focus a lot on the candidate and trying to help them is really, you know, helpful because it can be a pretty discouraging experience for job seekers. In terms of career, the other thing I wanted to ask you was about studying an MBA, because I know you went on to get an MBA. Mm -hmm. What was some of the reasons why you started to consider studying an MBA? Yeah, I mean, again, it just goes back to the fact that I think I think science is fantastic, and I still consider myself a scientist. However, I think for me, it felt more impactful when we were actually being able to help people. And I went into science to help people, and research obviously helps people, but it's a much more long-term horizon, whereas I think getting an MBA, you can actually you know, develop practical solutions with your research. And I think to me, that felt really exciting because especially in the area of workforce decision-making, I think we have so much... Uh, work to do in terms of getting it to a place where it's more predictive and also more fair. 
the last thing I like to ask guests of the show is what would be some advice that you would give to young professionals? It could be in terms of career or more in general about life. Is there something in particular that you would tell young professionals? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I would have two things to say. I'm going to say this to my 14-year-old all the time. One is that it's so important to follow your passion. If you're passionate about something, I think even if you feel like you don't have the skills or whatever, like follow your passion because, you know, work is an all-consuming thing. And I think being passionate about what you're doing is so important. And I'll give myself as an example. I mean, I was a, you know, 30 plus year old single mom. I wasn't an engineer and I had these dreams of starting a tech company. And that wasn't an obvious choice given, you know, my demographics and my background, but I was very passionate about technology and I really felt like we had something to offer. So I'm very glad that I followed my passion, even though I think people looking at my resume wouldn't have thought, oh, tech entrepreneur, right? And then the second thing is that I think a really great way to understand whether you're going to like something or not is to try it. So I always encourage people as much as possible to you know, intern, even if you have to do it, you know, on the weekend or at nights or whatever, like dabble in whatever it is that you think you're going to do next, because I think sometimes you can make the mistake. And I did this early in life of thinking you want to do something, studying it. And then once you try it for even a short period of time, you realize, wow, this was a huge mistake versus I think the opposite is not necessarily true. I think if you try something and you like it, I think that's a really good proof point for going ahead and then pursuing that as a career. So as much as you possibly can, even if it means sort of stretching yourself and doing it, you know, off hours because you have a day job, I would strongly encourage people to try to find ways to participate in whatever they think they want to do for a career, because I think it's a great signal as to whether it's truly a good fit for you. Well, Frida, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. 